All right, let me, uh, let me switch gears. We are actually starting a new series today, which I'll get to in just a minute. But to introduce the series, let me kind of roll into it a little bit. So my dad is, I don't know, he's probably 74 now. And my dad's so funny, like so many of us people that are now aging, we sort of adopt technology a little more slowly. It takes us a little while longer to figure it out. And so it's funny, when I call my, my parents, for example, even before cell phones, um, I could always tell when my dad answered the phone because he, I, he would, I would dial, you know, and it would ring and ring and then somebody would pick up, but there'd still be a lot of clicking on the other end of the line. And it's because he didn't know that he'd answered the phone. He was like looking at it and pressing buttons. And it's funny, now that he has a cell phone, he still does the same thing. Like I see him looking at it, like it's this weird foreign object and he's trying to figure it out what's happening. Anyway, the whole time I'm like, hey, dad, dad, dad. Anyway, so I say that just only to sort of roll into the fact that I too now, as I'm getting older, am a little bit of a technological Neanderthal. Like it's taken me a little while to figure it out. And so a couple of years ago, one of the Barry students who's no longer here, Matt Pulford, if you guys know Matt, he said, you know, BP, we need to have a Twitter account. And I was like, okay, that's, that sounds good. And so, you know, I've tweeted over the course now of the last four years, I think I've tweeted four times. So you can follow me at, I don't even know what my Twitter account is. Anyway, but it was the right idea. I just didn't put it into practice very well. Anyway, but you know, you guys, some of the, you in the room know Twitter and you understand that part of the way that it works is you follow someone or you are followed by someone. And so they actually have a little place on their website um, designed to help people like me who are not clear on what Twitter is and how it works, all those things. Here's a couple of the questions. These aren't going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read them to you. And so they're really helpful. They, they sort of have this Q&A page. Uh, and one of the questions is, what is following? Following on someone on Twitter means you're subscribing to their tweets as a follower Uh, their updates will appear in your home tab and that person is able to send you direct messages, right? And so people like me, 45 years old, are taking notes. All right, good, subscribing to tweets as a follower. Like it's making sense to me now. Another question, what are followers, right? Just in case you don't know what that is. Followers are people who receive your tweets. If someone follows you, they'll show up in your followers list. They'll see your tweets in their home timeline whenever they log into Twitter. You can start a private conversation with them. Again, it helps me, the Neanderthal. Uh, I even looked up one question. How do I know who I'm following? Click on your following number on your profile or homepage to see if you've followed. Displayed in a following list. You can unfollow users from that page if you don't want to follow them anymore. Helpful, right? Now, so the reason I kind of mentioned this is because um, what I want to start off by, by telling you is we actually are beginning a series called Following Jesus. Following Jesus. And before I jump into what this series is going to be about, although it's pretty self-explanatory, but before I jump into that, let me just say, um, make a statement, and I'm going to tell you something I think is true, which is that I think all of us are following someone, right? And I'm not, I don't just mean like on Twitter, you're following someone, but I mean that you're following someone or something, and that someone or that something is actually determining what you believe is true or false, or right, or wrong, or good, or bad, or valuable in the world, and you're basing your life upon somebody that you are following, right? And you may be automatically kind of going, no, I'm, I'm not doing that, actually. But the truth is we are, right? The surrounding culture is actually giving all of us a narrative or a recommendation of what life should look like, right? It's a cell phone commercial where all of a sudden your life is magically better, and you're connected with lots of people, because of the Samsung whatever, right? Or it's the cool computer and that the commercial tells you if you just have this, then your life will be you know, all these wonderful things. Or maybe 
what the culture is selling you is some form of exercise or outdoor lifestyle while still living in an urban environment with lots of cool people to hang out with and lots of craft beer to drink. You know what I mean? Like there's this image, like that's what life's all about, you know? If I only had this, mountain biking in the morning, hanging out at a cool urban context in the evening, drinking craft beer with my buddies. Anyway, CNN... NPR, Fox News, Democrats, Republicans, Apple, Google, Microsoft, they're each asking you to follow, and each of them is giving you a script, right? They're, they're, not, they're not saying it overtly, but they're wooing you, and they're saying, follow us, and we'll tell you what life is all about. We'll tell you what's good. We'll tell you what's true, right? We'll tell you what's false, and they're giving you a script to follow. And I'm pretty sure that each of those entities that I just described doesn't really care about you at all, right? It doesn't matter how many really kind of nice like donation programs they do or responses to this tragedy or that tragedy thing. They, they probably don't really care that much about you. They do care about making money. Some of them maybe care about making a difference in a world, but more than anything, they care about their market share and they definitely don't really care if you flourish as a human being, right? But they're asking you to follow them and chances are we're all following them far more than we realize, and let me just call time out here in, for one second, and, uh, and let, me, let me criticize the church as well, right? It's one thing to criticize Fox News or CNN, Republicans or Democrats. It's another thing to criticize the church. I'm not sure that the church has a track record that's really that much better than the world, right? I mean, I think we can probably all point to any number of different examples where the church has been polluted with its fair share of greed, its fair share of impurity, right? It's fair share of power grabbing, and usually at the expense of trusting people all the while calling you to the church's programs and activities and events, but what the church has neglected to do is actually to call you to follow Jesus, right? We've neglected to call you to follow Jesus. Today we're beginning this series called Following Jesus, and what I hope we accomplish in this series is that you would hear and that you would know that being a Christian is definitely about belief. That's no doubt that's how you're justified, right? I'm not saying that you are going to be justified by living a good life or by following Jesus, even in in sort of following his example. Justification happens as we believe in Christ alone for our salvation. But being a Christian is actually much more than just belief. It's also about following Jesus. Let me take a moment before we jump in and let's pray. Father, thank you very much um, for this day. I thank you very much that Jesus came to be our substitute, to be our sacrifice. But he also called us to follow him and that as we follow him, Father, he leads us or offers to lead us into the life that is truly life. That He offers to lead us in a life of true satisfaction. And so, Father, I pray that we would follow Jesus. Father, that we would knowingly, willingly follow your son. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. No, I don't need a show of hands, but, uh, but how many of you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Maybe, maybe you've seen the movie. See, I said no show of hands, like 20 hands went up. <laughs> anyway, uh, if you're a parent, I recommend that you read these to your kids. They're a great um, uh, sort of analogy of the Christian faith. And in, this, in sort of this, uh, this story that C.S. Lewis puts together called the Chronicles of Narnia, there's always this one central character named Aslan, and he's the Christ figure in this story. Well, in the first story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, these four British school children, the the Pevensey children, are drawn into this uh, other world called Narnia where they they run into Aslan, 
right? And so the story sort of ends with them being the high kings and queens of Narnia, but they get taken back into their own world. And in their own world, which is in Britain, time goes on as normally, but while they're in Britain, time in Narnia is sort of speeding along at a much faster rate. Well, in the second story called Prince Caspian, they're brought back into Narnia. But when they get back into Narnia, it's 1300 years later, Narnian time, and Narnia has been conquered by this other people, right? And what has happened is all the talking animals have been sort of driven into hiding or they've sort of become wild. And Aslan hasn't been seen for that whole 1300 years of time. And people have sort of forgotten about him and they just think that he's sort of part of these ghost stories. And so they get drawn into this world because they're there to help save Narnia from these wicked people that have conquered the world. And so what happens is as the four Pevensi children come back into Narnia, Narnia is overgrown and it's confusing and they don't know where they are. They're lost. They don't know where they're going. All they know is that Aslan is calling them to go and sort of rescue the people of Narnia. Well, the book begins as they're trying to make their way to the the area called the Stone Table because there's a resistance of sort of the, the Narnians that are sort of fighting against the people that have overtaken Narnia. But they used to know the way, like the back of their hands, because, but because it's been 1,300 years, it's overgrown and they can't find their way. And so they're lost and they're frustrated and they're disoriented and they're angry and Aslan hasn't shown up and they're asking that Aslan would come and lead them to this place, but all they get is silence. Well, into this silence, there is an evening where they're frustrated and lost. Aslan appears to Lucy. Now I'm going to read a section of uh, Prince Caspian. It's probably longer than I should read, but let's just pretend like it's bedtime and just pretend like your dad's reading to you and, and listen to the words of the story. So again, the, the four children are lost. They're there with a the little dwarf. Um, DLF is what they call him. And, uh, and Aslan appears to Lucy, but not the rest of them. So it goes like this. Look, 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 cried Lucy. Where, what, said everyone. The lion, said Lucy. Aslan himself, didn't you see? Her face had changed completely and her eyes shone. Do you really mean, began Peter. Where did you think you saw him, asked Susan. Don't talk to me like a grown-up, said Lucy, stamping her foot. I didn't think I saw him. I saw him. Where, Lou, asked Peter. Right up there between those mountain ashes. No, this side of the gorge and up, not down. Just the opposite of the way that you want to go. And he wanted us to go where he was, up there. How do you know that that's what he wanted, asked Edmund. He, I, I just, I just know, said Lucy, by his face. The others all looked at each other in puzzled silence. Her majesty may well have seen a lion, put in Trumpkin. There are lions in these woods, I've been told, but it needn't have been a friendly and talking lion any more than the bear was a friendly and talking bear. Oh, don't be so stupid, said Lucy. Do you think I don't know Aslan when I see him? Well, he'd be a pretty elderly lion by now, said Trumpkin, if he's the one you knew when you were here before. And if it could be the same one, what's to prevent him from having gone in wild and witless like so many others? Lucy turned crimson, and I think she would have flown at Trumpkin if Peter had not laid his hand on her arm. The DLF, which stands for dear little friend, doesn't understand. How could he? You must just take it, Trumpkin, that we really know about Aslan. We really know about him. A little bit about him, I mean. And you mustn't talk about him like that again. It isn't lucky for one thing, and, it, and it's all nonsense for another. The only question is whether Aslan was really there. But I know he was, said Lucy, her eyes filling with tears. Yes, Lou, but we don't, you see, said Peter. And so what you see here is the situation where Aslan has revealed himself to Lucy. He's invited her to follow him, um, but the others didn't see him. And she's too afraid to say, you need to follow me as I follow Aslan. 
So a little bit later in the story, it progresses. Aslan has appeared to Lucy again, and this time she follows him alone, and they have a conversation. So she's talking to Aslan here. Lucy, he said, we must not lie here for long. You have work in hand, and much time has been lost today. Yes, wasn't it a shame, said Lucy. I saw you all right, but they wouldn't believe me. They're all so... From somewhere deep down inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy, who understood some of his moods. I didn't mean to start slanging the others, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you don't mean it was. How could I? I couldn't have left the others and come up to you along. How could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I I suppose I could have. Yes, and it wouldn't have been alone. I know not if I was with you, but what would have been the good? And Aslan said nothing. You mean, said Lucy rather faintly, that it would have turned out all right somehow? But how? Please, Aslan, am I not to know? To know what would have happened, child, said Aslan. Nobody has ever told that. Oh, dear, said Lucy. But anyone can find out what will happen, said Aslan, if you go back to the others now and wake them up and tell them that you've seen me again and that you must all get up at once and follow me. What will happen? There's only one way of finding out. What's interesting in this little story, and again, it's this, you know, fantastic story that C.S. Lewis puts together from the start to the end of the Christian life, this allegory of the Christian life. But what you see in the story is that Susan and Peter and Edmund, they all believe in Aslan, right? Peter says so. They know about Aslan, but part of what C.S. Lewis is doing here is he's saying, he's saying it's not just enough to know about Aslan, you need to follow him. And that's part of where we're going today and in this series is we're saying that Christianity is definitely a call to believe in Jesus, but it's also much more than that. It's a call to follow him. Listen to John 1, verses 35 through 39. Now, this actually, verses 35 through 39, are part of a much larger section of the book of John that really is all about this uh, idea of following Jesus no matter what. And when they follow him, they are able to see. But we're just going to camp out here on a couple of these verses, beginning in verse 35. The next day, John, that is John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. Now, in that, just in that, those couple of verses, there's a ton to, impact, to unpack. We're not going to have time to unpack all of it. So I'm really just going to unpack one thought from this passage, and then in the subsequent weeks, we'll talk more about this idea of following Jesus. But the one thing I want you to focus on, just from this little story, is that the call to follow Jesus always begins with God's pursuit of us. Let me say it another way. The call to follow Jesus always begins with an awareness that God is actually following us. Let me, let me explain this a little bit by reading verses 35 through 36 again, and then I'm going to jump backwards into the beginning of John chapter 1. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, right? So here's this guy, John the Baptist, who is sent to inaugurate the ministry of Jesus. He has his own disciples that are following him, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God, we don't even have time to unpack that, but part of what John is doing is he's taking his disciples and he's saying, you guys need to go follow him, right? That's what John is recommending. 
Now, if you jump back a little bit further into verses 6 through 9 of John chapter 1, we see that this is exactly what John the Baptist was sent to do. He was sent to invite people to follow not him, but to follow Jesus. So if you'll look at verses 6 through 9, there was a man sent from God. God sent him. God initiated this pursuit, right? God wanted people to follow his son Jesus, so he initiated this work of calling people to follow his son. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, Jesus, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, Jesus. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In other words, what we see at the beginning of John is that the reason that John the Baptist is there is to invite people to follow Jesus. God sent him to, pers- to, to call people to pursue his son. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about today, really the main thing, is that one of the essential truths of Scripture is that God pursues us. Let me just let that sink in for a minute. One of the essential truths of Scripture is that God pursues us. He initiates a relationship with us, right? God called Noah. God called Abraham. God pursues Isaac. He pursues Jacob. He pursues Joseph. God initiates a relationship with Moses while Moses is hiding out in the wilderness. God pursues Elijah precisely when Elijah is running away from everything and everyone, especially God. Here in the New Testament, we see the same thing. Jesus initiates relationship with an oblivious Peter and with a rebellious Levi. He's working with the Romans. He initiates a relationship with greedy Zacchaeus and the hopeless woman at the well, right? Here we see that God sends John the Baptist to pursue people on his behalf and point them to his son. The pattern of Scripture is crystal clear, and it's that God is pursuing you. He is initiating a relationship with us, right? Now, you could look at Scripture and you could argue that that's true, but does that match up with how you live life? Does that match up with your experience of God? I'll let you think about that for a second, but let me point to C.S. Lewis's own testimony and hear what he has to say about how he came to faith in God and in Christ. I'll just read these. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. You got that? C.S. Lewis is writing about his testimony. It's like, I kept feeling God's relentless, relentless pursuit, and he was precisely the person I did not want to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. What a great testimony, an honest testimony. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the highest gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compel entrare, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. 
but properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation, right? What C.S. Lewis is saying there is he's saying long before we think we're following him, God is following us. Long before we're pursuing him, he's pursuing us, even when, especially when, we don't actually want anything to do with him. This isn't some sort of cold theological premise as it's often been talked about. It is true, but more than that, it's a picture of a loving father searching for his missing children, right? right? It's not some sort of, sort of cold, separate theological premise. It's a picture of a loving father searching for his missing children. Just think about that for a second. So if that's true, if it's true that the beginning of following Jesus is actually acknowledging that God is pursuing you, that that's the first action that's taken, we see it over and over again in Scripture, then what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that God is pursuing you? What do we do with the fact that God is following you? What do we do with the fact that God is seeking after you and searching for you? What do you do with that? I think the first thing we do with that is that we need to rethink how we perceive God. We need to rethink how we perceive God. Now, this is particularly meaningful to me maybe because of my own psychology, but I think it's deeper than that. But the truth is, um, I have a really hard time believing that God wants anything to do with me because I am very aware of all the ways in which I haven't measured up to the standard or his standard of holiness. I get that. I've failed over and over again. I've turned my back on him. I've rejected him. The story of C.S. Lewis that he paints this picture of his eyes darting back and forth trying to escape makes all the sense in the world to me because I've been trying to escape God for my entire life, and he refuses to let me go, and he continues to pursue me. I'm reading right now um, with a group on Thursdays, uh, John Stott's Read Through the Bible Through the Year. I actually talked about this a couple nights ago in Campus Outreach, and uh, we read a little section that Stott had written called The Glimpses of Grace, and it's after the fall, right, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and they're hiding from God in the garden, but he goes into the garden to pursue them. I'm going to read this little section from page 35. Of, uh, of Stott's book. Just bear with me, if you will, because I think that it will, it will or hopefully change your perception of how you view God. The situation is now dire, and the prospect bleak. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God's authority. They can expect only to reap the harvest of their own wrongdoing. It's logical to believe that God's angry with us. It's logical to believe that the only thing that we deserve is punishment, right? But against this background of sin, guilt, and judgment, glimpses of grace begin to appear. Firstly, the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The day's work was over. The Lord was taking his customary evening stroll. Normally, we may assume that Adam and Eve accompanied him, but now they were nowhere to be seen for they had gone into hiding. Yet, he continued his walk, seeking, searching for the missing couple. Next, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Nowadays, the roles tend to be reversed, and we talk about man's search for God, but the reality is that God is searching for man. While Adam and Eve were hiding among the trees, the Lord God missed them sought them, 
and called out after them. What if, that's the, what if, what if we saw God that way, right? In our failures, in our brokenness, in our rebellion, in our awareness of sin, what if we saw God that way, that he missed us, that he sought us, that he called out after us? Right? What if we saw God that way, right? Thirdly, although the self-conscious nakedness of Adam and Eve was their fault, Being due to their disobedience, the Lord God felt for them in their shame and wanted to do something to alleviate it. So he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, skin would be available only after the killing of an animal. Is it then hinted here, as it is plainly taught elsewhere, that the covering of human guilt in forgiveness is possible only through the shedding of blood and sacrifice, thus foreshadowing salvation through the blood of Christ? I would argue, Stott says maybe, I would say definitely, But what is explicit is that God determined to give Adam and Eve a covering far better than they could give themselves, providing them with his own personally tailored skin garments in place of their aprons of flimsy fig leaves. In each case, God took the initiative, and the proper name for an unmerited divine initiative is grace. See, I believe that our default position as humans, all humans, active followers of Jesus, and those who would say they don't even believe much less follow Jesus, but I believe it's our default position to hide from God because we are afraid of him, right? We don't believe he's good. We don't believe he's loving. We don't believe he can be trusted. We don't believe that he really wants anything to do with us. And I believe that Satan's primary temptation is precisely that lie, that if Satan can get you to believe that about God, that he's not missing you, that he's not seeking you, that he's not searching after you, if he's not calling after you, If Satan can get you to believe that instead God is angry with you and that he has only punishment and wrath for you, then you'll just try to stay away from God. You'll try to bribe him off with your good behavior. But that's why it's so important for us to see this picture of God pursuing, seeking, searching, missing, seeking, calling out after us, even that he cares enough to provide us with a covering. I would ask that if this is true, that you would change your perception of God. And the second thing I would ask that you would do this morning is that if it's also true that God pursues you, that he initiates a relationship with you, then if you're willing, I'd like to give you just one assignment, right? I know some of you are college students. I know some of you have jobs with lots of tasks to do. And so one assignment might feel pretty heavy, but let me just give you this one assignment. I would love for you to take one hour of solitude today. I'd love for you to grab an umbrella and to go for a walk alone. I'd love for you to go for a drive alone with the radio off, no podcast playing, and just listen. I'd love to invite you to sit on the back porch alone and see if you can hear from God. I I think it's entirely possible that God has been pursuing you and that with all the noise, you just haven't been able to hear. But I hope, it is my hope and my prayer, that some of you will take me up on this invitation today and that you'll encounter God, a gracious and merciful God who misses you and who wants to be with you and who wants to offer you true life, the life that is fully life, true satisfaction that can only be had when we're walking with him, the one who pursues us. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word makes it um, very clear that you are pursuing your children. Um, 
that Jesus made it very clear that the reason he came to earth was to seek and to save the lost. And so, Father, I pray that um, our perceptions of who you are and our perceptions of who your son is um, would be changed, um, not by popular psychology, um, not by sort of the cultural zeitgeist of the day, Father, but I pray that our perception of who you are and who your son Jesus is would simply be changed by the truth of Scripture and by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us to convince us that you are good, that you are trustworthy, that you, are, that you love us, uh, Father, that you're pursuing us and that you want to offer us life that is truly life, a life with you. And so, Father, I just ask that you would do this clearly for our good, but I pray that you would also do it um, for, for your glory and for the glory of your son, Jesus. So it's in his name that we pray today. Amen.